Welcome to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. A little farther into the show, we will have the second half of our conversation with circus artist, coach, and Cirque du Soleil rigger, Carrie Kay. First, though, we're going to be reviewing The Invisible Gorilla and Other Ways Our Intuitions Deceive Us by Christopher Shabris and Danielle Simons. Shabris and Simons are psychologists, and this book is about the behavior of our brains, our minds, us as humans, and the ways that we don't understand how we work in a lot of ways. So the title of the book, and I'm going to give it away, it's a spoiler. If you don't want to hear it, then just go ahead and skim through till you get to about the 25-minute mark and catch me for the rest of the show. It's called The Invisible Gorilla because psychologists did this interesting kind of test, fun little test, where they set up a basketball game and filmed it, and then they had test subjects watch the film. Subjects were told, watch the ball passing. Count how many times it is passed between players. And people did that. When they were finished, when the video was finished, the researchers would ask them, did anything unusual occur? And about half of them said, no, nothing. And about half of them said, yeah, it was weird that somebody walked into the middle of the game in a gorilla suit and stood in front of the camera. The people who didn't see it didn't see it. And when they watched the video again, they accused researchers of swapping out the video somehow secretly, even though it was the only video there. They couldn't believe that it was there all along. A similar experiment was done several years later with the very talented and famous classical violinist Joshua Bell. This was done in the mid 2000 aughts or something, early 2010s. First, they asked a lot of musicians, a lot of various people, what would happen if a world-class violinist set up as a busker in the subway? And all of them were like, oh, what a gift, what a beautiful thing. People are going to be so delighted. It's going to be so magical. Some of them thought that like crowds would gather and they'd have to get crowd control measures going on, which does seem a bit of a stretch. And so they did it and they filmed it. And in fact, absolutely nothing happened. Uh, one guy did recognize him and stay there and said he recognized him and gave him 20 bucks. But for his afternoon of playing, he got 63 bucks. And the filming of it is very much an ego hit for poor Joshua Bell. People just walking by, maybe throwing a, a dollar in or something, just walking by. Chapter one is, I think I would have seen that. A way that we often phrase the things that went by us that we absolutely should have seen, except that for some reason, some, and this is called inattentional blindness, we didn't see it. So they did other experiments. They've done other experiments. Like if you put a motorcyclist in one of those yellow reflective vests in a tricky intersection, 
if it stops right in the intersection. They get hit and 50% of the drivers don't even see them. Paint the motorcycle the same blue as the directional signals on the signs around them and that number drastically goes down. This was super interesting to me because in January 2020, I was driving on a very visible road. It was, there was no snow. There was no sand on the road. It was a sunny day. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. And I could see that a car on the oncoming lane had stopped because it was going to turn left. That driver had a lot of time to turn left before I got there, but they didn't. And so at that point I thought, oh, it's one of those things where that person's just letting me go by. And just as I arrived, he drove his car through my car. It was shocking. I'm just, we're both very lucky. I'm very lucky he was going from a stop. He was also an elderly gentleman. I get that. But he kept saying, I didn't see her. I couldn't see her. I was in a red Ford. You could definitely see it. You know, he probably has to get tested in some way and there may be other things going on. But what really struck me was that language. I would have seen her. I can't believe I didn't see her. She wasn't there. And of course, clearly I was as proven by my totaled car. So as if it's not bad enough already, this whole book made me think about other research that's been done around cops screwing up. And what they've found is that when you are under very high stress, when you can't manage high stress, and this is often the case for people reacting in terror, and cops are people who are armed and may get into this state and ask someone to reach for their wallet, and when they try to, they say, later, I thought it was a gun. It's not any kind of excuse because cops need to be exceptionally good at self-regulating and de-escalating. And we know that a huge number are not and therefore unfit for the job. But it is the dynamic of what's happening. Like, why did you not see that this person was unarmed? And it is that same thing because they're, I think I would have seen it. They, they expected it. So they saw it. And on runway accidents, on car accidents, they didn't expect it, so they never saw it. It also plays into some interesting research. There was one in the Scientific American in 2011 on men seeing women as objects. It also explains why men walking together on sidewalks often, or, or on the, in the oncoming sort of lane of sidewalks, expect women to step out of the way. And it's a lot of fun, although it's also very bruising to not do this. And while I can't experience it personally, race also makes this happen. Not because we have a male or a female or a white brain, but because we've internalized power dynamics and we expect lower status, people that we perceive unconsciously as mostly as lower status to actually be objects. So there is this fun game called Patriarchy Chicken. You can find it on Refinery29, Refinery49. There was one example of a black woman who had a guy that she actually made contact with 
and kept in her lane. He was walking into oncoming. He was keeping, she was keeping to the right. He had decided to walk next to somebody and kept eye contact with her until they slammed into each other. And then he screamed at her that she should look where she's going. You can try not to do it. You can focus on the oncoming shoulder, which may or may not induce them to move, but you will still get slammed a lot playing patriarchy chicken. But it, it's also, first of all, a learning opportunity for the person involved. And it's actually a real courage builder, a real take up the space you need builder. I have found it to be empowering, unexpectedly empowering. Not to obviously not to go out of your way to find people to body slam, but to hold your space in the space you have it when someone is trying to make an incursion on you. So the gorilla test is not an intelligence test. It's not a personality test, although lots of media and popular outlets desperately want it to be. It doesn't correlate at all to intelligence. It does seem to correlate with experience. Experienced basketball players are more likely to notice the unexpected gorilla. And that is because they have learned to know what to expect with passing and almost have a little more clearance in their brain to see the unexpected. Classical musicians in the area around Joshua Bell were much more likely to notice what was happening, even if they didn't specifically recognize him. They recognized his talent. This all was interesting in the way that it echoed another fun, it's not a research experiment, it's a, it's a super fun game to play. And it has a lot to do with reflecting back to people their mindset. If we expect negative all the time, we will data select for negative. And that's the basis of this little game. What you do is you stand with a bunch of people and you ask everyone in the room, to look for everything yellow. Count everything that's yellow. Give a good hard look like you're going to have to give me the list back of everything that is yellow in this room. You can play it right now if you want to, if you're not driving. And the reason why it's if you're not driving is because the next thing you do is close your eyes and tell me how many things were blue. And it's almost impossible to remember, even if something you know, fairly notable was blue, but that wasn't your task at hand. This all plays into the fact that we actually are unable to multitask. We have an illusion of attention and our brains cannot, in fact, multitask. They can switch often very quickly, thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, but there's always a price to be paid in terms of time. There's always a price to be paid in terms of actual attention and there's always a price to be paid in terms of exhaustion. We lapse all the time, but most of them are not important. So yet again, we don't bother noticing it. And being aware that attention is an illusion helps, but does not eradicate it. The Coach Who Choked is a chapter about a guy who had to ultimately be fired from his job for taking a player and a holding him around the throat to yell at him. He swore up and down that he didn't do it. Turned out there was, in fact, video footage. And he had done it. He hadn't done it for as long as the player said. 
And what happened next about people tearing the guy off of him did not happen. So the memories on both sides were a little bit wrong, but he actually had done it. What was interesting is the coach did this kind of thing all the time. So he no longer noticed when he behaved in this, frankly, outrageous way to players. But this player had never had an authority figure, a coach, come up and grab him around the throat. And so it was much more of a sort of shocking moment to him, leading to still some problems with recall. There's another experiment that someone did, and this has to do with whether eyewitnesses can be trusted as well. If, sure, they said, the gorilla coming in, that's kind of weird and... Yeah, they didn't catch it, but surely everyone would catch it if it happened in real life, right? So the experiment they made up is somebody, you can find this on YouTube. Somebody holds a map out and is asking for directions. And just as the other person is trying to give, you know, the research subject is trying to give directions, there is some kind of interruption. Usually it's like workers bringing through like a large piece of construction debris or something. As the workers do that, the person with the map changes. They switch places. Again, 50% of the time, the person giving directions does not notice. And the person asking for directions can change radically. But it is so, I mean, the only word is unexpected. How would this ever be a thing that happened that it's very easy for people to just overwrite that they must have been mistaken about something? And of course, they don't care a whole lot either. It's just a weird glitch in the matrix somehow. And I would love to see if there's a correlation with early childhood gaslighting and sense of self. Do I think that's pervasive enough to be 50% of the population? Yeah. And when I think of how teacher-student dynamics also involve often a lot of gaslighting, and I would absolutely think so. I don't know that we could ever test it, in fact, because of that. Emotional memories are more likely to induce strong, vivid recall, but not always strong, accurate recall. The chapter of what smart chess players and stupid criminals have in common is the fantastic Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that the less you truly know about a subject, the more likely you are to be overconfident about it. Because a better way to say it is we all think we're better than average. And even as I say that, don't forget there's real deep difficulties with the concept of average. It's almost, no, it is a meaningless concept, average, because it puts us all together and doesn't really make a statement about the individual. So when we mix up what average is and apply it to an individual, it's never going to fit. But it is true that people end up with an exaggerated sense of their competency with something if like the less competent they are. Or that's what Dunning-Kruger is. I don't have to point it out. Our last president was not a great businessman, but he had a lot of wealth and he had a lot of people who sort of even his teachers just gave him a passing grade and let him go on. And he would claim often that he was the smartest person in the room. And of course, that was verifiably false. Anyway, 
they talk a lot in this about experiments they've tried to create. And this is where a lot of the social sciences get a little muddy because you sit there going, well, one of the tests about what is subjective, who thinks a joke is funny, how do people feel about their own attractiveness? That I found, I found that to be the kind of thing where social sciences get into trouble because you can't replicate it because humor and attractiveness are already subjective and you are asking, you're trying to set up a test about subjectivity with topics that are already subjective. And they were like, had experts on humor say what was a funny joke or not. And I was like, what, who are your experts? What makes them experts? Who are your test subjects? What makes them text, uh, test subjects? There was an article I saw, oh, it was about seeing women as objects, and it said, our brains see women as objects. And I thought, who's our? Is this by men for men? Because if you're talking, is it by white people for white people? Impossible to tell. Is your collection of experts on humor all middle-aged white men that are successful comedians? Because the gate was so kept that hardly anybody else got through. It's, I don't know that any of this is replicable, quite frankly. But then there's this whole piece about confidence that you do need to have confidence. But then on the other hand, when you have too much confidence, you end up in a Iraq war because the guys around are confident that the Iraqis have nuclear weapons when they don't. So confident does not mean, confidence does not equal ability. And groupthink, when it gets involved can inflate that sense of confidence and that sense of trust in a way that nothing, there's no foundation for it. I love that these authors acknowledge that personality traits as such, like confidence, do not determine your behavior all the time. They're very context dependent. And I loved this quote, confidence is related to but not the same as dominance. And even dominance isn't typically measured in studies of personality. People confident in one domain tend to be highly confident of their skills in other domains, which I'm sad to say it, but is quite true, does describe a lot of academic behavior. It also describes the last presidency and it also describes a lot of the people that were hired to the cabinet. Betsy DeVos knows nothing about education. She just wanted to dismantle it for political reasons. She has, she doesn't know anything about it, but the idea was that, oh, well, she was, you know, competent in fundraising. So somehow she should know how to run an education department that does not follow. And the fault lies not in our confidence, but in our love of confidence. And I thought that research would be really interesting if it was done on rhetoric and how those skills are developed. So rhetoric is the study of speaking and the study of persuasion. All of this adds up to how many times people misremember an attacker and how police lineups don't really result in any kind of accurate conclusions, meaning that without other compelling evidence, awful though it is, it's too easy to do the opposite awful, which is fail to find the actual attacker and incarcerate an innocent person. 
The next chapter is, should you be more like a weather forecaster or a hedge fund manager? And I, this is great ways to think about this stuff. Asking why all the time to check your knowledge like you're a six-year-old. But why? But why? But why? Taking the time to completely understand the question before you try to solve it. That is a lesson that I just pretty much need constant reminders about. And I found it to my peril. Many, 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 many times I have gotten impatient before I finish the question, the instructions, the whatever. And it's not terrible in the sense that if I don't finish the IKEA instructions, I probably will take longer building the desk. And the reason I will is because there were three things that had to be done in a certain order before I could do the fourth. And when I find that out, I have to go back. In some ways, this has to do with that sort of idea of Howard Gardner and multiple intelligences. That's a kinetic intelligence. That's one that says, I actually need to have it in my hands before I can truly understand it. I need to do some experiential learning before I can truly understand it. It also has to do, quite frankly, with poorly designed user experience, user interface directions. If something, and, and I picked Ikea, but in fact, Ikeas are usually terrific. Ikeas are usually completely wordless and very easy, at least if you are visually inclined, very easy to grasp. Projects that turn out to be more difficult than their designers and the politicians who launched them ever expected and there's just an endless list of fun things with that the big dig in boston the sydney opera house pretty much anything and i love the authors introduce hofstadter's law it always takes longer than you expect even when you take into account hofstadter's law so the upshot of this is to stop behaving like a hedge fund manager hedge fund managers shouldn't act like hedge fund managers they've found out that there are games where they put a grid on the ground and then release the cows and wherever the cow relieved itself is the stock that you buy. And those are as likely or better to have decent returns than hedge fund managers. Throwing darts at a board has at least the same or better as hedge fund managers. Hedge fund managing, it is a funny little job to have because the story that it tells about itself is that it is data-based and rational and sober decisions made. And no, it's not. It, the whole stock market is unbelievably emotional and reactionary. And in fact, that's why when... They're making the comparison between a weather forecaster or a hedge fund manager, that we'd all actually be better off if we approach things by saying this has a 21% chance of going wrong or something like that, where we kind of actually hooked it up to a scale of some sort instead of just buy, 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 sell, 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 buy, sell, buy, sell. One of the things about this is that weather is not as a topic. It's not super emotional. At least typically it's not. And the book has it as being not particularly emotional. And that there's also the fact that in recent years, we've made it super emotional. 
the news is always run by bad things. And that is why the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, is how news is made. We pay attention to it. We are attracted in many ways to it. It, it, it literally holds our attention, which means that for the longest time, weather was just weather. And when this book was written, I think the change had started to come, but weather was just weather. When you start having storm team updates and the weather channel trying to make weather exciting, it has to go globally. It has to tell you, and there's nothing especially bad about knowing about a terrible storm in Indonesia, but if it's supposed to be pulling an emotional response from you, then it's going to make you not particularly prepared for your own local area. Things like the Weather Channel do make weather emotional. So they need to, that's not really brought into focus in this, but it has happened. Sometimes less is more. Subjects who only got performance information on a stock once every five years earned twice as much as those who got regular monthly feedback. So they had an exercise on managing the endowment of a small college fund and investing it, and they did terribly when they got frequent updates. And we know that anyway, because if you read anything from people like Warren Buffett, who is like the most successful investor of all times, they say the same thing. Research the company, invest in it, and then walk away. Don't look at it again for a year anyway. Oh, here was another thing I thought that was really helpful to know, especially because I've had so much experience with this in the past. We mistakenly think that other people know what we are familiar with. And the authors don't add, but this is what I have found. And then we have contempt for them because they don't know it. When I did tech support, I had coworkers who were a few who were desperately unkind to our clients and users because any idiot knows this is how it works. And it was like, that's a big reach. Why should a user know the deep workings of this software that we spend eight hours every single day with and they spend three or four on top of, but not behind the scenes? They can't know. And we don't know they may be unbelievably gifted accountants, and we don't know that. And meanwhile, when we struggle to, I don't know, figure out the uh, points on a real estate deal, they think, well, any idiot knows that. I thought that was a really interesting observation anyway about it. I want to thank the authors for the concept of neurobabble, which they also call brain porn. I've covered this before in How Emotions Are Made, but it also came up in that body book uh, a couple weeks ago that I really didn't enjoy. Just because your brain lights up on an imaging screen doesn't mean that we know anything about what just happened. And the authors say it seduces us into thinking that we have learned more about the brain and mind than we have. I like that distinction that brain and mind, they're not the same thing. But just as importantly, I think, and, and they, don't grill, they don't go down, drill down on this, it makes researchers and academics first 
thinking that we've learned more about the brain and the mind because when that's written into papers, when that's written into research, media, people that are enthusiasts like me feel like, oh, there is some backing behind it that there may well not be. There's a couple more chapters on it. There's the jumping to conclusions, get smart quick, the myth of intuition. What I found was this book, The Invisible Gorilla, it's similar to Freakonomics with this huge benefit. It's much better than Freakonomics. The problem with Freakonomics is that it's interesting and cute, but it has misleading certainty and it assumes everything is traditional economics. It's uncritical about research done by friends of the authors. There are statistical fallacies, dumb assumptions, but it does make you think and it's kind of it's kind of sticky and grabby. What I love about the Invisible Gorilla is it's got some of that same sort of infectious joy and like, hey, this was super unexpected. Oh, uh, even as I describe it, I'm going to say it's like good and bad clickbait. <laughs> this book is much more understanding of its own possibility of clickbaity. So thumbs up. The Invisible Gorilla and Other Ways Our Intuitions Deceive Us by Christopher Shabris and Daniel Simons. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. Next up, part two of my conversation with circus performer, coach, and rigor with Cirque du Soleil, Carrie Kay. So that's great because when I go home, I am fully disconnected from work and I don't, I don't worry about it until I go in next. Right. That's, that's really nice having that disconnect. On the flip side, it means I have to be in this one spot. I can't, I don't have the flexibility of leaving and going somewhere else. And as long as I've got an internet connection, I can do my job. Right. Right. Uh, no, so re no remote work with us. Yeah. So there's no remote work and it means I don't necessarily get to pick where I'm living and I don't have as much flexibility in, in my life in, in some ways because of that. Well, you know, what I wanted to, what I was thinking about this, especially because you're in at the creation stage, I, th I don't know that people really realize how much almost of a shadow choreographed performance rigors put on at the same time as the visible stage performer performance like every time mm -hmm. a performer is coming down on an apparatus the riggers are choreographing a going up on theirs to there's there's this whole there's a whole second side of this dance with the weights oh yeah absolutely and it's not just riggers there's there's a huge technical team that is required to make the show happen the the automation team they're moving winches up and down so on a show like Cirque du Soleil, if a performer is on an aerial apparatus and they're moving up and down in the air, that's they're on a winch. And mm. so that's being controlled by somebody sitting at a computer console and the the actor is already programmed into it. So when they hit the, the go button, it moves to the next cue. And so it takes that winch to this position in the air and the performer does whatever they're doing there. And then, oh, time for the next cue, they hit go, and now the winch lowers them to this spot mm. and so on. Automation can also control things like the stage, 
turning or lifting or lowering, uh, doors uh, yeah. closing, curtains moving. So a lot of that stuff on these larger shows like Marvel Universe Live and Disney on Ice and Ringling before they closed and Cirque du Soleil, they're using automation to do a lot of those tasks that formerly would have been done by riggers hauling on ropes and pulleys. Oh, uh, okay. Smaller shows definitely still use ropes and pulleys because they're significantly cheaper. But, and that, I, I would say smaller shows are, are closer to traditional theater and the way that the, the rigging operates. There are carpenters who are responsible for staging and set pieces and moving those kind of things around manually if it can't be done with automation. Mm. There are props people to maintain the kind of handheld props and things. There's mm. a wardrobe team to manage all the costumes. There's right. lighting team to handle projections and the lights and spotlights on the the performers. There's an audio team dealing with the music and the band and making sure the the sound quality is is good. I was last year I was working on a show called La Pearl over in Dubai and that was a water show and so there was a diving team there. Mm. Uh, an aquatics team. So there were multiple divers in the pool for the show helping the performers get in and out of the pool because they would go into the pool and then disappear under the stage and so they <sighs> had an entry and exit backstage that the audience can't see and so there were divers to guide the performers you know on and off stage via the pool that's uh, amazing yeah and so there's there, there are dozens of people backstage to make possible what the performers are doing on stage uh, so yeah it's, there's there's a whole invisible show that most people yeah. never get to see yeah and now, so now that is your extraordinary career, and maybe it's a total Venn diagram, but community and your own creativity, how do you find a way to pursue any of those things? Um, well, this winter, I, I finally started working on this street show that I've wanted to do for over a decade before I went to circus school. I had, I had started incorporating elements of street performance into my fire show, but it, it was not not really a street show yet. Like What's the difference? Had, Define a street show for me. So what I'm talking about when I say a street show is also called a circle show, where a performer goes out onto some big sidewalk or open space called a pitch, and mm. they start setting up their equipment. They have their sound system, potentially, and they, maybe they put some music on and start testing their microphone. And start talking to the people walking by, hey, I'm, I'm going to do a show. You want to watch me do this trick? I'm going to do this thing. But before I can do that, I'm going to start warming up. And so they start warming up. They do some easier tricks to kind of get an audience gathered. And then they'll quite literally create a circle of people around them. And so they create a stage out of nothing. Mm. And, and for you know, anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour, they'll do tricks and tell jokes and interact with the audience and build up to whatever their finale is. And uh, they'll 
do what's called a hat line just before their finale trick where they say something like, you know, thanks for watching. I'm not getting paid to be out here. I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And so after I do this last trick, I'm going to be standing over here and, you know, I appreciate any, any tips and such. Yeah. And so, the, you know, they're asking for money from the people who just saw the show and the, the kind of terrifying and wonderful thing about it is that no one is paying to be there ahead of time. So they've already seen you perform and they know whether they like you or not. Yeah. And so it's, you get some really honest reactions from that. Like if you, people come up and they enjoyed your show, they'll give you money. If they can't give you money because they don't for what, or they unable to, for whatever reason, then, you know, they'll come up and tell you they enjoyed watching the show and that sort of thing. And mm. It's really cool getting that immediate feedback. So that's that's a street show. Um, okay. There's also you know musicians and living statues and there's huge variety of ways that you can perform out in public on on the street. And yeah, so I started working on this show with a good friend of mine, Michael Trotman, was my director and guide through the process. And so I met with him once a week and I spent as much time as I could in regards to my energy level outside of work, working on this show and Mm. trying to write material, training skills and rehearsing choreography and building choreography and figuring out my technical needs and storyboarding and all this. And it, it really the more I got into it, the more it kind of snowballed and picked up steam and I was gaining uh, motivation the more work I put into it. Mm. And so just getting started was the hardest part. And once I actually started and committed to meeting with Michael once a week and, um, okay, well, if I'm meeting with Michael, that means I need to also spend time on my own so that I'm not wasting the money or wasting Michael's time. And so I would put in time outside of work. And then that the amount of time I was spending after work, working on this other show quickly grew to 20 to 30 hours a week of time training and writing and and focusing on this show. So it, it was, it was, finally giving myself permission to work on this thing that I've wanted to do for a really long time. Mm. And out of that, I got to spend a lot of quality time with my friend, Michael. And uh, I started shooting ideas over with a good friend of mine, Tom Walls, very supportive over the years and Mm. always makes time to watch, watch videos and give me ideas and coaching tips and, help with writing content and he's, he's been invaluable as well but if it, it if weren't ha- for having Michael there to work with face to face I don't think I would have started working on it mm. it was because I had somebody else there to help guide me through it and that I had to commit to meet with every week that that is what helped push me over the the edge of actually starting to work on that, that oh that's show. neat That's neat. 
And then how would you, the job that you have now, will it give you some time off to test some material on the road? Or is it something where you sort of sequence it, like do this for a while and then expect to move on and, and do things on your own? I'm I'm figuring that out. Mm. I wasn't actually um, looking to do rigging anymore. After the pandemic hit, I, I decided, you know what, I don't, I don't think I want to do that anymore. I've done it for a while. I want to focus on the show. I, I spent the last year during the pandemic living in Maine, uh, working on my friend's house. We were renovating the house. And so we were living there and also working on it. I was replacing hardwood floors and siding and mm. electrical and drywall. And, and I learned a lot and it was really fun. And I was very glad to have that opportunity, but it was also very hard on your body. The, yeah. the repetition is what gets you. It's mm. not necessarily heavy work in its own. It's that you're doing it for hours and hours, the same motion over and over. That's what really tears your body down. Uh, at least it did for me. And so that made it more difficult to train the amount of time that I wanted and needed to, to make any kind of significant pro progress towards the show. Mm. So in May, when that house project had uh, wrapped up, I was planning on moving back to Kansas to live with my dad for a little while so I could just focus on the show. And this job opportunity kind of came out of nowhere. Like, like I said, I wasn't really looking for it. Mm. They actually asked me to apply because the company manager and artistic director, so they're, the company manager is in charge of everyone on the show. The artistic director is in charge of all the stage managers, the performers, the coaches, and then there's uh, usually like a production manager or a technical director some ah, sort. Okay. They're in charge of all the technicians and the backstage stuff. They're the top three managers of the show. And the, I had worked with the company manager and artistic director on Oboe, and they reached out and asked me to apply. And so hmm, I did. That's nice. After a couple interviews, I got the job. So I know that doing rigging work is easier on my body so even though i'm working more hours here than i was doing construction i have a lot more energy at the end of the day and ability to train and work on my own stuff and because uh. there's that really good work life separation and i can't take my work home <laughs> that means that when i'm away from work and I have this energy, I can work on whatever it is that I want to work on. And so that was a really big factor in me taking the job is the ability to keep working on my uh, show. Yeah. There were some life circumstances that were going on and have kept me away from being able to work on my show since about mid-May. The whole move and transition down here to Orlando and and that you know just takes time and i mean um, yeah that's a, that's only a couple of months in terms of street shows when you plan when you think about doing that when you plan to do that where would you do these where where how would you go about like performing them where would you go to do that 
around here, I'm probably just going to go to parks, and if there's people around, I'm I'll probably just go up to them and ask if they want to see some tricks and try and do like little five minute testers, you know, mm -hmm. just to get to like workshop it. Yeah, workshop it, get the material in front of an audience that doesn't know me and has no reason to, you know, already be supportive. Mm. And if I can get people who've never seen me before to sit and watch me for a couple of minutes, do whatever ridiculous thing, and they're entertained enough, great, that's a good start. And yeah. then Clearwater, Florida and St. Petersburg, Florida are about two hours away from here and the, they're pretty well known uh, street performing like busking okay. locations. Um, there's Key West. I might make a trip uh, at this point. I won't, I wouldn't be able to go until next spring up to New England and go hit up uh, Church Street Marketplace in Burlington. If I feel like I've got my show good enough i'll audition for Daniel hall in boston okay yeah um, that's a famous pitch boulder ha colorado has pearl street marketplace uh, which is really well-known busking location huh. so yeah there there's some options but uh i don't know orlando very well yet so i don't know if there's a place around here i i haven't heard of anything in mm. orlando but right right now it's more once i get into my new living situation starting september 1st and i'm unpacked right and uh, my work schedule kind of stabilizes then i'll be able to really start thinking about that sort of thing right now it's that makes makes sense yeah like i i just worked six days in a row and i have one day off and now i'm gonna work four more days and then yeah i'll have two days off and then I'll have my normal like five day schedule. But like this week, tomorrow I start at 9.30. Then uh, Thursday, Friday, I start at 2 p.m. And then Saturday I'm working oh, it's p.m., yeah, 4 a.m. It's, it's gonna be all over so, the map for a while. Well, so I have a logistical question yeah. for you. So mm -hmm. uh, in the olden days, there was some hope that people would be at spaces and have cash so that yeah. you know b back in the day i would go out to boston and you know visit and got a stop by faneuil hall and i'd give people you know a five or a ten or whatever because they were amazing and now yep. people do amazing things and i think i wish i could i have no cash i never have any cash yeah well, how do you how do you are there is there a movement to sort of overcome this? Um, so, yeah, there are uh, people are making signs that have, here's my Venmo, mm. click this QR code, QR code, and it'll take you to PayPal or Cash App mm. or Google Pay or Apple Pay. So people are putting these signs up at their shows so that if you don't have cash, they can still accept electronic payments yeah there are also uh there's this great website busk.co busk.co and they have made these little they're like what you see at a restaurant or a store where you can just tap to pay and you can preset the amount on there like five dollars or ten dollars one dollar whatever you want yeah 
so they just come up and they open up their Google Pay or Apple Pay or whatever, and yep, this is going to give them a $5 tip. That's kind of nice, because I think the thing that would stop people from necessarily doing it is being like, I don't know this person, like I need their, like you're saying, it's more like a restaurant, so it's like this person has an account with us, we are the trusted, you know, intermediary kind of thing. That's really genius. Yeah, it's it's great. And I mean, when when you just finish doing a sign, you've got a or doing a show, you've got a sound system, you know, yeah. you're entertaining people, you're obviously wearing a costume, you're not just some random person on the street and you've got three signs up saying, Hey, my name is such and such. You can find me on social media at yeah. you know, performer name and on all these, you know, PayPal Cash App, Square. Google Pay. I'm on all of these things at the same tag as the social media, like your Instagram and your Facebook account. So right, you can find me all, for real. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you have your branding like that, it it makes you legitimate. Like I was saying about having the t-shirts with yeah. my name on it and my logo earlier. It's, it's the same thing. It it's not just some like fly by night and because it's going through like PayPal or Google pay or whatever, people are used to paying with those things now. And so it, it's not, it's not as taboo as it once was. True. Um, yeah. Are a lot more comfortable doing it. They know that there's some layer of protection. Like I'm not, a, I'm not ever going to be in possession of their credit card, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That's really true. And then how, I mean, I suppose you're figuring it out where you are. You were saying before that when you were on tour, the community was this bunch that you literally did everything with, but do you find, do you find that you really seek out community when you are, you know, in a job where it's not sort of part of the, part of the workplace? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I want to have people to, hang out and spend time with outside of work. I, I like to be fairly social and have things that I'm doing with other people, you know, four to five days a week. And then one to two days a week, if I can keep to myself to take care of whatever errands and things and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of unwind. That's about all the time I need to myself. I, I'd rather be with people. So I actively look for people to juggle with or to Mm. go swing dance. I used to swing dance or play board games, you know, whatever it is. I I actively look for people to do things with and have a community outside of work. Yeah. So that's, that's another post uh, post once you're settled in your new place in September task for you to (laughs) try to find some people who love board games (laughs) yeah exactly it's it's great because now like i signed the lease last week Mm. the week before and i i was lucky i found a place that i liked and was met my requirements that i was looking for in regards to commute and price and Mm. size and kind of location so i got really lucky i found that uh, congratulations after getting to Orlando, thank you. So that was a huge stress relief getting that done. So now I've been able to just kind of focus on work and meeting the people there and 
getting settled into learning the area and right. starting to find my way around and find those communities. It's a whole internal map. Yeah. Well, so here's a question I'd like to ask people. What would you go back and tell your younger self? Mm, in regards to anything or just... Yeah, in regards to how your life has come out and, and you know, sort of ways to like what what would what would you tell someone either yourself i mean it's really a way of telling other people like think about this on your way through mm -hmm. i don't know i would i would probably say don't go to college and hmm. um or if you're going to go to college go someplace cheap because i don't know how many of my friends and myself included that aren't using the degrees we got and my brother bought a house for less than it cost me to go to college and so that's a pretty ridiculous amount of money mm. um, to be in debt at the age of 22 and have no work or life experience i i met a lot of cool people at college and i had some great experiences and i i have some really good friends from those days that i, I keep in touch with yeah um, but I, I feel like I could have just moved to Vermont and gotten similar experiences and not gone to college and started out in debt. Isn't that interesting? Because I think one of the reasons, like I was thinking to myself, but would you have ever, you know, come across poi, given that you went from, you know, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, I'm not sure which. Up, both sides, yeah. Both, yeah, up to Vermont. And, <laughs> and in a way, it's almost like... It's almost like we don't separate that for kids. Like you can still go somewhere like you would go to college, but go, right. go somewhere like that. You know, it's funny because if you don't go to college, a lot of times you don't leave home. Whereas yeah. really what, what sort of the upshot is, is go somewhere as if you're going to go to college and then see what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, give yourself a few years to just figure out who you are and what you want to be. It, it's kind of crazy that when you're 18, you have to make a choice that is going to impact you for a very long time. And like, I just got out of school and this is the first thing I'm allowed to do on my own. Yeah. I don't know what I want to do. And saddling people with that kind of debt is it's, it should be criminal. Honestly. Um, I, I think if people were to spend that same amount of money, to go travel the world for six months or a year. Yeah. You know, if the average average student debt, I don't even remember what they're saying it is now, like people are graduating with $25,000 or $30,000 in debt. I wish that's all I had in debt. Yeah. <laughs> but if I, if I had spent that money and gone and traveled around the world, I would have had so many good experiences and, and encountered different cultures and, ways of doing things and it would have given me a much better perspective on the world um, than just following along the same script that you need to go to college so you can get a job yeah. and you're going to work in this job for decades and get a house and then get married and have kids and right. do it all again. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, that's not for everybody and it doesn't have to be. If, if you want to do those things, great, please do. But 
the fact that that is seen as the default and the the option is is kind of unfortunate because there's so many other options out there and so yeah i, I think true. i would probably tell myself don't call don't go to college just move to vermont just move to vermont yeah it's really yeah. true and and what you say is true like you're told what to do you know k to 12 so why would you do something different in what amounts to grade 13 yeah <laughs> you know and you're right it is the first time you're really on your own to make your own decisions and it's funny we don't we don't prep kids for that and we don't really disassociate it from like that is the college experience for most kids but it it doesn't have to be <laughs> it doesn't have to be associated with right. like major debt <laughs> what if right. you did all the going out on your own without the debt that's really interesting a neat a neat sort of other version of because a lot of times people go on a gap year, but it's almost like this, like, uh, I, I volunteered somewhere because now I have to go to, like, I'm going to do what I'm told, but I'm putting it off for, for a year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, this has been a joy and a delight to talk to you, Carrie. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really good uh, getting to talk to you. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Really appreciate it. And good luck. Good luck with your move. Good luck with your new job. Congratulations. Thank you. I'd like to thank Carrie so much for being here today. If you want to listen to the first half of our conversation or any other episodes, go to working9tothrive.com, which is with the number nine, and follow us on social media.